0: So ventilation in the ITU, we don't have to worry about it other than putting them on the ventilator, do we? The physio comes and shakes the patient occasionally. That's all it takes really, isn't it? Let's find out. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. Um, I've got a special episode. This is the first time I've tried a new system and this is with Rachel Moses who is a consultant respiratory physiotherapist. Um, I believe lives in the northeast but doesn't actually work in the northeast. Is that right Rachel?
1: That's right. I actually live in Newcastle um, where my marital home is but work in the northwest at Preston um, covering Lancashire and South Cumbria region.
0: So okay I'm excellent.
1: There, but um, But it works.
0: And a consultant respiratory physiotherapist, what does a consultant respiratory physiotherapist do that a a physiotherapist doesn't?
1: That's a really good question, and it's actually a role that's evolving in the 18 months since I've been in post. But my job title is complex ventilation and airway clearance. So for me, that's everything from the unweanable patient in the intensive care unit to weaning that patient either with or without mechanical ventilation support um, all the way through to community and end of life so across that whole ventilation spectrum and then I suppose I have additional skills in airway clearance so patients with or without airways um, and how we can optimise those um, patients non-invasively.
0: Okay and I think airway clearance is kind of um, a lot of what we're going to talk about with your presentation which you presented at um, the ICU study day in London on the 24th of November last year. Why were you asked to go attend that particular study day? It seemed a long way from your patch.
1: Um, So yeah that was a study day set up Um, it was actually sponsored by a company but it was looking at new and invasive uh, methods to help airway clearance. Um, So there was um, a talk from an ECMO physio because obviously they're very challenging patients to treat, but really where we're up to in the world of intensive care medicine and how we can help to get rid of um, retained secretions in the airways and also how we can prevent them and how not only physiotherapy but nursing care can help to improve that.
0: Right. OK. So just working our way through some of your slides and um, like we discussed before we started, uh, we press record. We're not necessarily going to talk about each and every slide and go through every point that you made. Um, but the need for mechanical ventilation is one of the first things that you touch on there. Um, and it talks about the ventilator taving, uh, taking over the work and decreasing the muscle load. Um But you also then go on to discuss some of the problems with endotracheal intubation. And you make quite a number of points on that particular slide, all of which I think are going to result in us talking about how we're going to help these people clear their secretions. So the endotracheal intubation... Let's. I'll start you off. It reduces mucociliary clearance, but what other issues does it cause that is going to mean that the physiotherapist has got a little bit more work to do and perhaps um, needs to find um, new means of doing so?
1: Well, obviously, when someone is that unwell, they require invasive mechanical ventilation. Um, they're pretty poorly, and the first thing the tube does is exactly what you've said, reduces that mucociliary clearance, but also reduces our normal body mechanisms of clearing secretions. That is obviously from a humidification point of view, but obviously you have an open glottis. So therefore the cough is not essentially a true cough. We know that people can cough, but it's very much secretions that are in the upper airways. And because we're not mobilising those secretions right down in the bottom of the lungs... And as well, the patients are immobile, they may have reduced muscle strength, particularly expiratory muscle weakness. Um, There's an absolute increased risk of infection, increased risk of mucus volume, and because of the effects of mechanical ventilation, and obviously consistency, because our patients tend to be dehydrated. Um, If you combine that with the prolonged effects of immobility and cough impairment, and then additional muscle weakness. We know that the muscles start to to um, to become weaker within the first 24, 48 hours. That is just a cycle of atelectasis and chronic secretion burden that can then absolutely hinder the weaning process.
0: Okay. Um, so one of the things we're going to focus on in this presentation is some more novel ways of clearing those secretions um and i think like we've discussed before i've worked in units where um the physiotherapist is very much a hands-on technique um is that something we're losing or are the basics still very valid
1: yeah i mean if if we touch on the basics to start with which you know i think we often take for granted, I mean, humidification I touched on, mobilisation of your patient, in the and that's a spectrum as well. It's not just getting someone up out of bed. And airway suction, and are widely thought of those routine procedures to manage the most immediate secretions in your ventilated patient. So humidification is absolutely standard because we artificial airways bypass the body's own natural humidification system. And the most common... Initial humidification method is um, HMEs, um, and they're in most units in my experience used for when your patient's likely to be ventilated for less than 72 hours, and then people will progress onto the heated humidification systems, um, or in, indeed some clinicians might decide to go straight into a heated system if they've got complex respiratory comorbidities, or if they've had thick copious secretions, say in the in the theatre room. Um, or if you just know your patient's going to be ventilated for a long time. Um, but again, the evidence to support the different humidification measure methods is very, um, very scant. We obviously have airway suctioning, um, and I mentioned in my talk about closed versus open suction. Back in the day before we had closed suction circuits, it was a regular bag and suck around the bed, so your physio and your nurse would manually hyperinflate your patient while performing open suction techniques as an aim to keep the patient recruited. So you didn't de-recruit once you're disconnected from the ventilator. And then of course, um, you would often use normal saline installation as part of your sec- secretion clearance techniques. And again, there's very, very little evidence out there to support the installation of saline down an AT tube. In fact, most of the evidence says it's dangerous, um, but it's actually a really commonly used technique across the UK. Um, so when we talk about the basics of secretion clearance techniques, that, that's absolutely the basics from my point of view.
0: And and then you inter- said that with sorry with mobilisation. I think you were about to get on to that. But with mobilisation, you say it's a little bit more than just sitting sitting a patient up. So what what more is involved than just sitting the patient up from a physio's point of view?
1: Absolutely. I mean, early ambulation and routine turning should be standard. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest this two hour. Now, the reality certainly in the the intensive care units I work on, which have mainly been major trauma, and neurotrauma units. Um, That's absolutely impossible because it it takes you a good 20 minutes to turn your patient anyway. Um, But even just lateral side lying, and I think there's some half-hearted attempts sometimes of putting someone in a lateral position, but us physios, we like to put someone in a really good lateral position with hip and knee flexion, get the upper arm right over the thorax, so you can really optimise postural drainage as part of that um, turning routine as well. Again, very little evidence for this, um, but we know in clinical practice it absolutely um, works very effectively.
0: Okay and it's interesting that uh, you talk about saline installation as part of um, suction practice and there was actually a, a Twitter poll um, that um, you got on one of your slides. Is that something that you did yourself? I mean just to tell people uh, the listeners that uh, the question was do you use saline installation as part of your suction practice if indicated uh, brackets ETT or tracky adults or PED? So, so everybody really and um, of people said yes. So that's an interesting result, isn't it? Bearing in mind that there's very little evidence. And in fact, actually, the evidence we have got uh, potentially proves harm rather than good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... Novel interventions and these um, are some things that I've seen in my practice and there's some things that I haven't seen in my practice. Subglottic suction is something that I'm certainly seeing more commonly now. Um, Continuous turning beds, I think we've talked about this before, these are presumably quite expensive pieces of equipment and I would say that probably 90 to 95 percent of the intensive care units certainly in the UK are not going to have something like this. Is, Is this the future or is this just a bit of a wish list? really?
1: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there has been some quite really good studies out there um, using continuous lateral rotation beds um, with the primary aim of reducing atelectasis or secretion burden in your mechanically ventilated patients. Um, And there was a meta-analysis about five or six years ago now that did suggest that rotational therapy decreased the incidence of pneumonia, but it had no effect on duration of mechanical ventilation, number of ICU days, or overall hospital mortality. So for me, these big, expensive turning beds um, that you haven't just got the expense, obviously, of the the bed itself, it's the maintenance and everything else that comes with it. I mean, the evidence just does not support the cost benefit or the patient benefit at this moment in time. Um, I think part of the problem is, is a comparative trial to the lateral rotation beds, because, again, they try and compare it to this golden two hour manual turn. And. Um, But that's again just not feasible in the majority of intensive care units anyway. So at the moment, I think the evidence suggests that they're not cost or patient benefit.
0: Okay, Um, the other point further on down that slide is early extubation onto NIV. Now, I'm getting the feeling from some of the research that's crossed my path um, recently is that this is actually something that potentially is going to be beneficial. Am am I right in in assuming that? Is is the evidence going that way?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think um, certainly uh, some of my colleagues in the States do this very well. Um, I think in the UK, we generally um, wean to extubate. Um, so, you get your patient down to 10 over 5 or whatever, and then you take the tube out. I think what we should be doing, and it does happen in some parts of the UK, is we extubate then wean. So, you'll extru- extubate your patient as soon as they're awake. Um, I mean, patient selection is the key here. But, you know, even on, if they're on really high pressure support, um, getting that tube out as early as possible straight onto non-invasive ventilation, even if they're ventilated 24-7 initially, and then wean from non-invasive ventilation.
0: Are there studies that have done that?
1: Yep. So there's some um, there's some studies from again from the states. Um, John Back um, is a particularly well written author um, who specialises in long term ventilation, but also has an acute unit in New Jersey, um, and this would be their primary patient group. I mean, he mainly looks after neuromuscular patients, but if you think a lot of our patients, especially the ones that have prolonged mechanical ventilation in the UK, have, you know, a neuromuscular diagnosis. But also the COPD patients as well who are, you know, your your prime example of patients that could be weaned quickly onto non-invasive.
0: Okay. So we move on then to, we've we've talked about um, some of the ways that we can um, relieve the mucus burden, if you like, and it's a term that you've used several times now why 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 do we relieve the mucus burden why why is it important
1: so i mean it's it's simple physiology isn't it as if you've got someone on a ventilator and their lungs are full of sputum you're either going to have to ventilate them harder or for longer um to help them wean so gas exchange isn't as effective um you know it's uncomfortable. They have um, higher secretion burdens, which mean more suction, which again creates more secretions. So it's just, again, this cyclical event. So prevention is better than cure, but some patients will arrive in the intensive care unit with, you know, consolidation on x-ray, with high secretion load, needing frequent suctioning. So I think for me, it's, it's a really important role of the intensive care physiotherapist to help identify the best intervention for that particular patient.
0: Okay. Um, And then the common physiotherapy adjuncts um, that we do see commonly done. So we've got percussion, postural drainage, manual hyperinflation, ventilator hyperinflation, and then the bronchiolar lavage and and physiotherapy. And we've already touched on the fact that bronchiolar lavage is possibly not one of the best practices but these are the common physiotherapy adjuncts aren't there and they're out there they're done regularly every day across hundreds of patients across um, intensive care units are there any particularly on that list on that particular side that i'm looking at now are there any that are particularly um becoming less favoured or are there ones that are becoming um discovered to be more useful or is it the novel ones we're going to talk about now that potentially are going to be the things we're seeing in the future
1: um, well, I think if we're starting off with percussion, which is a very historical thought of, you know, if we're if, if intensive care colleagues, isn't it? The physios come along and bash with the chest. I think um, certainly percussion has a place. Um, it's obviously used in long term with some of our um, bronchiectatic patients and our CF patients. Um, but it's basically the simple um, the simpler application of of energy so kinetic energy across the chest wall to just dislodge those bronchial secretions now in your patient who's quite slender um, and has quite a compliant chest wall that will absolutely work but for some of your other patients who maybe have a you know a lot of fat and um, that you have to get that oscillation those those techniques through it's not going to work for them so i think percussion and other manual techniques will always have a place but again it's about selecting Your patient, and um, you know, I talk a little bit more about the, the chest wall trauma patients as well. So, some of these techniques are automatically excluded for some of your patients. Now, bagging, so manual hyperinflation is absolutely used and I think i done another Twitter poll on that as well um, leading it was actually leading up to this this talk that I was given because I was interested to know how many people still use it because I for one certainly think it's a really good adjunct to have if you've got if your patient's not coughing for example for whatever reason when you're suctioning to try and breath stack someone, um, so giving them initially small breaths and then providing a really large breath by increasing your pressure through the bag by closing the valve, holding it and trying to stimulate that huff, then combined with either, you know, a shaking of the chest wall, like an expiratory or a forced manoeuvre, that can actually help to mobilise secretions into the upper airway so then you can suction them out. So I think skills like that for me are absolutely still going to be fundamental, certainly throughout my time in my career. But for example, ventilator hyperinflation is becoming much more commonly used with the newer ventilators to help prevent ventilator um, day recruitment when you take them off the vent. Um, So I think maybe from that point of view, people will use manual hyperinflation less and use the ventilator more. Um, and certainly we mentioned about bronchiolar lavage. Well, I think if you have a very difficult patient and you fail through other methods to get rid of certain areas of, of intense secretion um, load, then certainly positioning with the bronchoscope, with some lavage and some additional physio, like the manual techniques I've just tra- talked about, can be really beneficial. And I'm sure a lot of my colleagues would would support me in that.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. So the meat of your talk, really, um, having um, set the scene, um, is some of the more novel adjuncts. Now, I confess that I haven't seen any of these adjuncts being used in my practice, but I work in quite a small intensive care. Um, I came from a relatively big one, um, sort of mid, mid to large size, I guess. But now I've moved to a smaller one. So we don't use this kind of thing. So start talking to me about something called high-frequency chest wall oscillation. Um, with a, That's a Curas negative. So what is that to somebody who may never have encountered it?
1: So, yeah, the, the concept of high-frequency chest wall oscillation is that it's a concept. And then you have companies that have produced machines that allow you to do that. Now, the cuirass shell... I'm sure you're aware is for negative pressure ventilation. So within the concept of the cuirass shell, that you've you've got different um, companies, um, they can provide rapid insufflation and exsufflation, so rapid inflation and deflation of the shell, to help stimulate that huff or cough maneuver, and they can also provide oscillations through the through the shell through the same technique um, to provide extra pulmonary oscillations through the chest wall so the QRAS shell is one way of doing it which I have to say there's probably about three or four centres across the country that I know that have trialled it and a couple that still own one Um, but it's very very, it's not commonly used in the UK at all. What is more commonly used for high frequency chest wall oscillation is, is VEST the VEST technology which is used in long term mainly again with the CF um, children and, and, adult, and young adults um, but it is finding its way into our intensive care units so the vest is basically a band so this is the when we use it in acute it's a band that goes across the thorax around the rib cage and it just attaches by velcro and then the actual machine is like an air pulse generator that has two tubes coming out of it that fits into the vest on either side and this generator sends air through the hoses, which causes the vest to inflate and deflate rapidly. And I think it's up to about 20 times a second. So really rapid in inflation and deflation. Hmm. And the, how the speed of the inflation and deflation basically creates pressure on the chest, which is similar to the percussion therapy. And this not only separates the mucus from the airway walls, so it almost just shakes it off the airways, but it also helps move it up into the main airways itself. Um, and the, the treatment times can vary. I mean, I think the companies say successful is anything from five minutes upwards um, and generally you'd leave it on for about 30 minutes if they could tolerate it. And obviously a patient can stay on the ventilator. There's no, um, there's no worry about day recruitment um, and you've got access to the secretions through the, through the AT tube or trachea.
0: And again, are there good studies that prove the efficacy of the, of this system? Are they out there that show demonstrate that it works?
1: Absolutely not. No, no. And I think this is in the UK because of how our obviously commissioning of healthcare um, resources and devices is that there's very little evidence to support to support it in the acute use. Now, there's transferable evidence, but again, not that not that acute evidence. No.
0: Okay. All right. Um, so with. There are a couple of studies you mentioned, though. Um, there's an older study from 1993, isn't there, which is an, an evaluation of high frequency chest compression. For secretion clearance in mechanically ventilated patients, um, the main outcome of it was equivalent safety and efficacy, and, and eighty percent of therapists believe that it reduced their workload. So this seems to be more about not necessarily that it's achieving the drainage required, but it's making it the the workload of the physiotherapist a little less.
1: Absolutely. So those blunt trauma patients we mentioned um, are difficult to treat, and. It is quite timely going across to the patient, positioning them, leaving them for a little bit, doing some hands-on techniques. So this study was designed to prove that one, I can't remember which company was, which Vest which company was that, um, that, that they used in this particular study, but it was predominantly a safety and efficacy study, um, which showed, unsurprisingly, that it was safe to use and that the therapist found it effective and efficient. Yeah. Um, but I suppose it's that age old comparing something that you just put on and press start to something that actually requires a level of skill and time
0: yeah okay Um, And then um, an interesting study by Anderson et al., um, which talked about the safety of high-frequency chest wall oscillation. Um, And they actually tested this on blunt thoracic trauma patients, so patients who've had um, something something significant happen to their um, chest wall. um, And actually, um, it was found that... um, the, the oscillation treatment was safe for trauma patients with lung and chest wall injuries. So that presumably means that it's safe for those patients who haven't had such a kind of injury, if you believe actually um, it, it it does make a difference.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, the, this, like I mentioned, was a nice study because typically we probably would have shied, shied away from external compressive forces with uh, thoracic trauma patients. But we absolutely know these patients, if they are mechanically ventilated, but, you know, after that 72-time-hour free read, they're much more likely to be um, invasively ventilated for a long time and have difficult weans. So, in this particular study, um, they actually had um, blunt or some of the subjects had penetrating chest wall injury and they had to have had two or more rib fractures with evidence of um, pulmonary contusions. And um, so, again, those high-risk patients that were more likely to kind of succumb to long ventilator times. So it absolutely just gives us a little bit of a flavour for maybe thinking about this type of intervention for those types of patients, which is something that we probably wouldn't have done before, especially from that time. I think the paper was 2008.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we then move on to, um, on the slides, um, some quite Um, what shall I say older looking pieces of machinery Uh, this is something you call the intrapulmonary percussive ventilation or the IPV Um, and like I say you've got two variations of this um, machinery and they do look like something from probably I would say maybe 20 years ago what what, what's this What, what how is this different from what we've just talked about
1: so um so intrapulmonary percussive ventilation um is it's it's actually trade named as a device um, by a company. And it was actually developed, I have to mention him here, by um, Dr. Bird. And everyone that works in an intensive care, you know, or in respiratory knows what the bird is. Mm-hmm. You know, the intermittent positive pressure breathing, the little green thing. And it was him that actually came up with the concept of this um, intermittent percussive ventilation tool um, back in the late 80s. So that's why the picture that you're seeing, um, that has the, the machines have evolved, but they've kept the same interface. They've kept the same box interface. So, yeah, they do look quite old. But um, the IPV is actually a ventilatory treatment that delivers very small bursts of gas flow directly into the lung. So it's different from the external oscillatory device. And the the way that the IPV works through the phasotron, and I'll talk a little bit about the phasotron in a minute, um, is it causes the airway pressures to oscillate at really small tidal volumes. Um, and because they oscillate these small tidal volumes, it's theorised that the collapsed airways, so the smaller airways will open and the secretions will be mobilised because of how high frequently the the um, the air is delivered at that oscillating pressure, if you know what I mean. So rather than hyperventilate your patient, your oscillating airflow all the way down to the small airways will help re-recruit and help mobilise all secretions. Okay.
0: Okay. Um... And is this is again? This is a system that's that's still being used today.
1: So no, so the the IPV, I suppose we would um, compare it to the jet ventilation. Right. But the IPV technology was used to create the percussion air, um, right. and the percussion air is something that many of my colleagues would have heard of across the UK, but quite a few will have actually had access to it. So. Back in the day, I think I first got my hands on a percussionaire in Newcastle on the neurotrauma intensive care unit that was at the Newcastle General. There was a chap there called Dr. Bullock and he'd been away, I think, to France, um, and seen this device being used and said, I want one of those, and managed to get one over. And I think the Royal Brompton at the time done the same thing. So these devices turned up in the UK and um, we basically had a French manual and we were trying to work out how to use them. But um, it actually t- it actually took off um, with about four or five centres across the UK, but I'm not sure who else still uses it, which is a real shame because it's the only form of intrapulmonary percussive oscillatory therapy that certainly my eyes, a physio, have ever been exposed to. Um, and it basically works by, it's a generator. So you have your generator that looks very much like the IPV um, ventilator picture. It has four separate leads that connects to a phasertron, And then you have this nebulizer chamber that connects directly onto like an AT tube or a trachea or a mouthpiece. And in my experience, we always disconnect to mechanical ventilation. So we stop it and then we deliver the percussion air therapy Now, this phasotron I've talked about is is basically the physiological interface that delivers the high flow mini bursts of air. And I think you can vary how the oscillations of what they're set, Um, and it can vary between 100 and 300 times a minute. So bursts of air being delivered at high flow rates um, through this phasotron system. It's basically a sliding venturi system that moves forward and back to deliver these because of bursts of air. And the concept or the theory behind it is it creates this wedge pressure, which is a continued pressure um, throughout the airway, but it has these oscillations. So for that reason, they open up the airways and then help get behind the secretions to help again mobilize them into the the larger airways. Um, And because you have this chamber, you can deliver saline, so you can deliver the aerosol mist again, helping to reduce the adhesive and cohesive forces the secretions normally have within those smaller airways.
0: Okay. Well, anything that has something in it called a phasotron gets my vote, definitely. So we move on to something then called the the Metaneb, um, and this is made by Hill-Rom, um, and this seems to be a pneumatic non-invasive phys- physiotherapy technique that delivers chest high-frequency oscillations. So how does this one work um, that differs from the others, or is it a similar system? It's just a, a newer version?
1: Well, this is um this has been in the States for a while now, um, but it's only actually been launched over here in the UK um a few months ago. Um I've bought one. I think Newcastle have one. I'm not sure who else has one. But it's um how it works is in a in a slightly similar fashion in terms of a venturi fashion. They don't have a phasotron, but it's a pneumatic form, I suppose, of, of mucociliary mucosillary clearance that works through cycles of air. So they have a set frequency rate and a set pressure. Um and basically the the pressure is oscillated when it's delivered from the actual um the actual device through the airway and um, so it works in a slightly similar way but it's it's set all the pressure and the oscillations are set
0: and it certainly looks more modern than the uh the equipment that we've seen
1: it's modern uh, and it's cheap it's actually with very cost effective. it's a very you know affordable tool if you like um, and
0: again what's the evidence is there good evidence for it
1: so there's very in terms of um use in intensive care the, the evidence is very limited at the moment, but I think they are there is some currently some clinical trials um, out there looking at the use of the MetaNeb device, the Metaneb technology with invasively ventilated patients.
0: Right. Okay. Um, the <sighs> The, 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 the slide I'm looking at now it says uh, mechanical in Um And this is uh, abbreviated to M I E, that's right, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so talk to me about mechanical in
1: So, mechanical in is basically the cough assist. We can't really call it the cough assist anymore because it's painted against a company. But it is what we would class as a standard airway clearance intervention. So it's um, it's the cough assist machine. So it's a mechanical device that delivers a positive pressure, so an insufflation. So when you're de- delivering the insufflation, you deliver it to the maximum insufflation capacity. So if you think if you're gonna generate your biggest cough effort that you can, if you've got something stuck in your airway, the first thing you'll do is wanna take the biggest breath in you can. Then, obviously, we rely on glottic closure, but we can't do that with an ET tube. So you then have to shift rapidly into that negative pressure to to generate that high expiratory flow. Mm. So what the mechanical device does will do that automatically so you massively insufflate your patient with the deepest breath in and then it cycles very quickly into negative pressure which essentially sucks the air and any secretions that are in the airways out into your at tube or your trachea or whatever so you can suction um so mechanical and is is there is loads and loads of evidence out there for the use of it um, in acute and long term and now there is some evolving evidence in the use of intubated patients and I mentioned John back before he's someone that's got um, a couple of great papers out about how um, we can absolutely use mechanical inexinflation as a routine to help speed up that weaning process and also help to prevent failed extubation
0: okay and is this um, a particularly expensive piece of equipment? Because from what I'm gathering, it sounds like it's a bit more evidence-based and therefore may be something that other people might want to consider.
1: You know, it's it never ceases to amaze me that this tool, this this device should be in every single intensive care unit in the UK. There's no excuse why it shouldn't be and why it shouldn't be used routinely. But you're absolutely right. The, the message I get from... Physiotherapists and nurses, because nurses can use this device just as effectively as physios, um, is we have trouble getting our hands on them. Or intensive care unit won't buy them. But the ev- you can't dispute the evidence, and I think the big thing is people now having the confidence of using it with intubated patients mm. um, and knowing how to. We are trying to develop a protocol to help clinicians use this treatment effectively with intubated patients um but the device itself depending on there's two main companies that we would procure from in the uk Philips respironics bd electromedical and you, there are, the, the list prices of both are similar about four four and a half grand but again you go through your procurement for that and if you're purchasing devices from them as part of your procurement people often get them at, at lower prices so I think that's a very cost-effective intervention um, for that price.
0: Okay. Um, the takeaway messages, and, and this is one that I wanted to um, focus on particularly, is that you say we've lots of evidence and experience and it doesn't have to be a p-value or ability to be systematically reviewed. It it doesn't have to be, but in today's financially strapped NHS, it often is required to be, isn't it? Um is that something that you sh- can sometimes struggle with in your practice that um, producing this evidence based um, way of working um, can sometimes make, make life difficult? I mean, I, I, I do believe that evidence base is important, um, but sometimes you can get so many conflicting um, pieces of evidence that it's often difficult to know which way to go.
1: I completely agree with that, and I think part part of the the problem, I suppose, we have um, in respiratory physiotherapy, is particularly in critical care, is having that control group um, that that you need in um, knowing because we never really use anything in isolation. It's always in combination. It's knowing which factor or which technique has caused that end result of call you know, had that outcome if you like. Yeah. And secretion clearance, again, there might you might be radiological changes, but it's very difficult to then measure any any other type of outcome. So for me, and you asked about studies with the metanib and things like that, the majority of the evidence is single case studies or um you know, and I think, again, that's very low level evidence. But for me, it's it's still evidence and I think it still helps to inform our practice. And I'm certainly a big fan of having adjuncts that we can use, but it's not just a case of putting it on someone and pressing and start. It's about how you how you look at your patient individually, understand the physiology, and then what are you trying to achieve by it. So I think the fundamentals are there. I mean, anyone who is invasively ventilated will have impaired secretion clearance we'll always know that getting these patients up early is the best approach but often we're limited Um, and for me the key is using the adjuncts that you have to treat that particular problem that you have with that patient if that makes sense
0: okay one last question for you then Um, i'm going to give you an unlimited budget but you can only buy one piece of equipment which one are you going to buy
1: so if, you, if your unit hasn't got a cough assist machine, it's absolutely that. And if they did have a cough assist machine, it would be the percussion air.
0: Right. OK. All right. Well, I shall be filling in the um, the request forms when I go back to work and see how we go. Um, but I suspect I might need to do a little bit more persuading. Um, it sounds like you're persuaded a lot of these techniques. What else? Just to pick your brains a little bit, Rachel, let's change the subject very slightly. What else is happening in uh, the physiotherapy world as far as iten- in intensive care is concerned that um, is, is a focus for your attention other than just clearing people's secretions?
1: Well, I mean, obviously early mobilisation, getting patients mobilised while are still invasively ventilated with ET tubes is, is huge now. It's trendy, it's sexy, um, you know, and people want to do it. I think we have some evidence. I think the UK is really leading the way in this. So, um, Bronwyn Connolly, David McWilliams, um, you know, amongst a couple of others, Leading clinical trials, leading the evidence, I think that's in. There's no one that can challenge us in that in that respect. Mm -hmm. So I think respiratory therapists in the US, um, obviously yourselves, the, the advanced critical care practitioners, I think are an evolving speciality and bring a huge new dynamic to the intensive care unit. But I think from a physiotherapy point of view, it's where unique skills and airway clearance and early mobilisation, and understanding the underpinning physiology behind both.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm finding really quite exciting at the moment, being a bit of a, a Twitter freak like I am, is that I'm seeing an awful lot of people t- uh, tweeting um, over the last week or so about allied health professionals and the fact that they can have um, in the intensive care unit and how much more important they are going to become um, to the intensive care unit. And I think it's so true. You know, we talk about dietitians, we talk about physiotherapists, just to name a few. Um, and I think your voice is becoming more and more important. And we are all stuck. Starting to become part of a, a more unified and um, a forward-thinking team.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, dietitians, you're absolutely right. You know, these patients are in catabolic states, they're nutritionally depleted, it has an absolute positive correlation on weaning and breathlessness and everything else. Um, in my speech and language therapists, I mean, yeah. I used to have intensivist crush um, but now I feel I've learned a lot from them and I now have speech and language therapy crush because I learned so much from them in terms of um, airway, you know, airway interaction, laryngeal function, certainly in those bulba patients. And, you know, I think the next step is physiotherapists are commonplace in ICU, aren't they? But we absolutely need full-time ICU dieticians, speech and language therapists as well to help with that whole process because they're often an add-on. Um, as are most of the therapists, physios have a have a slightly better advantage in in you know in business cases. We're, we're now starting to get into those business cases. But what other allied health professionals have got a long way to go. So I absolutely agree with you. Together, as allied health professionals, we're a much bigger force to be reckoned with than everyone in isolation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to um, stop you there, Rachel. That's been absolutely fascinating. It's given me an insight into some of the things that I personally have never heard of. And it sounds like um, some of the evidence is a bit iffy for some of them, um, but certainly cough assist, it sounds like from your point of view, that's something that we should all be using. Um, I think the takeaway message is basically that um, physiotherapy um, is something that's moving forward. It's changing its techniques. It's using some of the old ones. It's moving forward with some of the new ones. It's becoming a much more not a much more important, it's always been an important part of the ITU team, but I'd like to think now that with um, the different um, respiratory physiotherapists and um, ultrasound physiotherapists that I know about as well, um, some, a chap called Simon Haywood, I don't know if you've ever encountered him, he's, he's quite into his ultrasound, um, there's a real development um, amongst the physiotherapy world to be a bigger and more important part of the intensive care um, team, and that's just That's just brilliant. You know, the more specialties we can get involved, who can look at different aspects of the intensive care units pathway, I think can only be good for that intensive care patient. So thank you for talking to me. It's been a fascinating discussion. I may well come back to you again in the future and have a conversation with you about various other things as well, because it sounds like things are going to change.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it.
0: Okay. Thanks, Rachel. Um, That's all from me today, guys. Um, I think we'll leave it at that. There's a lot happening for me in the future. We're probably still, um, if this is—if I'm going to release this just before the Critical Care Symposium in Manchester, I'm going to be speaking there. I've also got the ACCP conference in June. And again, I'm going to smack in Berlin. So if you see me at any of those conferences, um, you see me wearing my T-shirt with my brand name on the back. I know, I know. Come and give me a tap on the shoulder. Say hello. It'll be lovely to speak to you all there. But for now, I'm going to say goodbye. Um, And hopefully we'll speak again soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes.